Apple presents Meet the Musician at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from Q104, Jim Kerr, and tonight's guest, Don Felder. Good evening. You have uh, a very unique opportunity tonight to experience something most people never get to experience, and that is an intimate encounter with uh, one of the greatest rock and roll musicians of all time in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Where he belongs. And before we uh, go to Gainesville, Florida, because I, I want to get into some of uh, your early days at the, at the beginning here, I just, I just want to mention something that a lot of people don't realize. The Record Industry Association of America is the uh, trade organization that uh, uh, officially proclaims records to uh, be gold records or platinum records or multi-platinum records. I think there are diamond album awards. Uh, that's for 10 million units sold. And uh, the RIAA uh, figured out what the most successful album of the 20th century was in the United States. By the way, it was not Thriller by Michael Jackson. Good album, that's what people guess, but that would be wrong. It was the Eagles' greatest hits the biggest selling album of the 20th century. So, what, uh, what did they put in the water there that you guys were drinking in Gainesville, Florida? Uh, I mean, going through uh, just the list of, of friends of yours who uh, joined you on a uh, road to uh, fame in the music world is, is pretty incredible. I mean, you knew Stephen Stills when you were kids, for instance. Yeah, Stephen and I had a band together when we were about 15 years old. We were just kids. Our mother would drive us around to play shows because nobody had a car or a driver's license. Uh, there was an unusual number of people in that particular part of the world around Gainesville, Florida, that went on to be platinum-selling artists and inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. One of my guitar students... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, this is, this is unbelievable. One of my guitar students was a kind of a blonde-headed, scrawny, buck-toothed guy named Tommy Petty that came into the music store, and I used to teach him guitar. He had a band called the Rucker Brothers Band, and we spent a lot of time uh, working with his band because he had two guitar players. Tommy was playing bass at the time. He had two guitar players that would just flail artlessly at the same time. So I kind of helped organize and arrange some of their songs so that uh, one of the guitar players would play rhythm guitar and the other guy would play lead guitar and Tommy would play bass. So uh, there were a lot of people around that area. Leonard Skittern was right down the street in a little town called Jacksonville, Florida. The Allman Brothers Band uh, wasn't the Allman Brothers Band. They were called the Spotlights or the Allman Joys. They had different names at the time. So. And, uh, and Dwayne Allman taught you how to play slide guitar on his, on his mother's floor? Yeah, that's Sitting right. Sitting on his mother's floor? Yeah, Dwayne was probably the best guitar player in all of Florida, if not in the U.S. in those days. And I had seen uh, guitar players play slide guitar, but they were usually blues guitar players that played an acoustic guitar. But Dwayne had taken uh, the electric guitar and started playing slide on it. It was just unbelievable at what he did. So 
We, during the summer when the University of Florida was out of session, we couldn't play the fraternity parties there. So we'd go over to Daytona Beach and we'd work all the clubs up and down Daytona Beach, the dance clubs and the bars and the pier. And when we all finished, we'd go to this diner and uh, have breakfast at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. One night we went over to Dwayne's mother's house and sat on the floor and he started playing slide guitar. And I said, you have to show me how to do that. So he taught me the basic tuning for slide guitar and the basic uh, hand movements that you use to play slide. And so everything that I know about slide guitar, I kind of stole from Dwayne in those days. And uh, Stephen Stills was the first among your group uh, to achieve uh, success uh, with uh, Buffalo Springfield. And uh, later on in your life, he was able to uh, set you up with a job and a good one. Yeah. Like I said, Stephen and I had a band together called the Continentals uh, when we were just kids. And as he grew older, he decided he was going to leave Florida and move to California. And uh, when he left, another guy showed up in town named Bernie Ledden, who was actually one of the original Eagles uh, guitarists. And Bernie and I had a band for about two or three years after that. And then I turned on the radio one day, and I heard this guy singing on the radio, and I said, I, that's really familiar. I know who that is. That stills, and it was for what it's worth with the Buffalo Springfield. And uh, uh, Bernie finally left Gainesville and moved back out to California and joined this band called the Flying Burrito Brothers and uh, made some great records. And he kept calling me in Florida saying, you've got to move out to California. That's where the business is, is, is out here in California. That's where the whole industry is. So I was reluctant and wound up moving here to New York in 1969 and made a, an album here in New York and um, wound up moving out to California in like 73, I think. And how was that uh, period here in New York? It was very lean and hungry. I nearly starved to death on the streets here in New York. I had this jazz fusion rock band uh, and we played the Fillmore East, as a matter of fact, uh, shortly after the Allman Brothers had recorded there. Uh, and this guy that was a jazz producer saw this band and signed us to a record deal. And I thought we had just died and gone to heaven, uh, having a record contract. And the guy gave us $5,000 to sign with his label, which was a lot of money in those days. So. It was. And yeah? it can be today, too. That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, we made a record out in Briarcrest, New Jersey, and uh, had some modest success with it. But New York, uh, coming from the um, dirt roads of Florida was not really where I foresaw myself living and growing up. So I eventually moved to Boston and worked in a studio there, learning how to make records, and then packed up and moved to California. And um, the first job I had when I got to L.A. was, ironically enough, playing in a band called Crosby Nash. When Stephen had left to go do his solo work, they hired me to substitute for him and play and sing his parts. And we wound up playing all over the United States. We played in Denver, and uh, Stephen was living in Denver, and he came out to sit in on the show. And so he walked on stage and saw me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm being you, because right, I was which, playing which is, his part. Which is, which is just an incredible story. That's how he helped set you up with a job. Uh, he had to be replaced. Of course, you, you through the years, became very, very good friends with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And you first saw Graham Nash when he performed with the Hollies in Florida. Um, and uh, the new album, here it is, Road to Forever. This is the brand new album. The first track is Fall from the Grace of Love. And who are the background vocalists? Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Not so bad. 
Yeah, when I started re recording this record, thanks, um, I, I really looked at people that I had relationships with, musicians that I respected, and people I'd worked with, and called on certain people to come down to help me with it. And uh, the first person I talked to was Stephen, and he said, oh, I'd love to come in and sing on it for you. So I called Graham and uh, David Crosby, and they... Uh, we wound up going in the studio the first day with just Crosby Nash, because they sing so beautifully together. And it's just really easy to work with them in the studio. And then the next day, Stephen came in and sang along with them uh, in the studio. So in fact, it wasn't all three of them around the same microphone at the same time, but we managed to get them all three on the record. Wow. That's, I mean, can you imagine Crosby, Stills and Nash as your background vocalists? Uh, and uh, you have some other uh, outstanding artists on the album as well. Tommy Shaw of Styx, for one. Yeah, Tommy and I have done a lot of fundraisers to raise money for different charities, played music for um, the victims of Katrina. We, I put on a benefit in Los Angeles where we had a lot of people come out and uh, sell tickets to raise money for all the victims of that awful hurricane. Uh, we also do uh, other fundraisers for Alice Cooper, has got a big organization in Phoenix, and we get together and play songs and sing together and help raise money well, for charity. Well, if you get together with him, you probably play more than songs. You probably play golf, too. Uh, Tommy doesn't play golf. No, when Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper. I play golf every time I go to Phoenix, yeah. Yes. Now, uh, some of these songs... Um, well, well you, you started working on this quite some time ago, but is, isn't there one song in particular on here that's kind of been rolling around inside your head for decades, literally for decades? Yeah, actually, the title track, uh, Road to Forever, when my father passed away, he didn't really get the chance to see my success in the Eagles. So I started tinkering around with this song about uh, we are all being on this road that eventually is going to wind up uh, at forever, we hope. And so I started writing the song as kind of an acoustic ballad. And then when I got into the studio to make this record, I decided it needed to really have a really strong rock and roll feel to it as well. So I rearranged the track and uh, had a bunch of my friends come down to play on it. A guy named Steve Lukather from a band called Toto, who's uh, just a phenomenal guitar player. Uh, I called up Steve, and not only is he a fabulous guitar player, but from the time he walks in the room to the time he leaves, you laugh. He's just the funny guy you've ever been in the room with. So it was delightful, uh, delightful experience to have t uh, Steve come in and work on that record with me and spend so much time having a, a great time laughing and making records as opposed to uh, having all the drama that I was so used to having in the studio with the Eagles. Now, uh, this is only, what, your second solo album? In yeah, a, that's right. In uh -huh. a 40-year career. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, the idea that uh, after going through a very, very difficult time in your life when your identity was kind of stripped away, uh, like your total identity was kind of stripped away, not just your job with the Eagles, but uh, your very long-lasting marriage broke up, and you were kind of adrift for a while, and you were in, in, in the midst of just hellacious legal difficulties that go on and on and on and on. And working on these songs apparently helped you personally through those difficult times. 
Yeah, it was a very kind of cathartic time for myself. Like I said, that first uh, year that I left the Eagles, in that same 12-month period, I went through a separation and divorce from my wife of 29 years. So everything that I had adopted as an image, whether it was being in a rock and roll band, a husband, everything had just been stripped away from me. And I really needed to find out how I had gotten to that point in my life. So I started doing these daily meditations where I'd sit down for 30 minutes or 45 minutes and meditate on specific parts of my life, going back to my childhood, in an effort to try to find out how I had gotten from a little dirt road in very impoverished conditions in north central Florida to being in one of the largest rock and roll bands in America, and then that all falling apart. And how I had been changed by that experience and what lessons there were in it to, for me to learn so that going forward for the rest of my life, I'd have a good understanding of where I came from, where I had been, and how I got there. So I started doing these daily meditations, and as I came out of these meditations, I would write down, much like you come out of a dream, and in order to remember your dreams, you write it down. My fiance started reading these things and said, you know, this would make a really interesting book. So the next thing I knew, I was on an airplane from Los Angeles to LA, and I went back to LA with five offers from publishing companies to produce this book. Now, I was a really terrible English student in high school, but wound up on the New York Times bestsellers list with a book that I wrote called uh, Heaven and Hell, My Life in the Eagles. While I was going through that kind of cathartic search for myself, I had a lot of emotions attached with those uh, experiences in my life. So I've had a studio in my home since like 1982. So when I wasn't writing uh, text about the book, I would go into my studio and take those feelings and try to write songs about them. So I kind of had a double outlet to express myself, both in text and writing a book and in song. So this album is somewhat like a uh, musical autobiography of experiences that I've been through, although the, most of them are very kind of common human themes as far as loss of love, being heartbroken and damaged by love relationships, uh, trying to get the strength to try to love again. Th those sort of experiences are all on this record. Now, when you joined the Eagles in 1974, uh, on, on the first album that you've participated in as a member of the band, uh, they billed you as the late addition to, to the band. And uh, they were already very successful, the Eagles. Uh, their first hit was in, uh, what, 71, 1971? 72, 71, 72, take it easy. And uh, so you, you were joining a band that was on an upward trajectory. Uh, and by joining that band, you helped to propel it even higher. I mean, quite honestly, any record company executive would have been quite happy with uh, the level of success that the Eagles had if they could just sustain that for a, a little bit longer, because they were undoubtedly a successful band. But your addition added something to the uh, alchemy, I guess, uh, the musical magic that just really sent them soaring. Well, my job when I was brought into the band was to bring rock and roll to the band. Uh, they had done a lot of country rock records like Take It Easy, Peaceful Easy Feeling, Tequila Sunrise. They were having a little bit of a hard time filling up stadiums with rock and roll. AM radio back in those days used to have songs that were three minutes and 30 seconds long. The introduction had to be 30 seconds or less so the disc jockey didn't have to talk for so long before the singer started. 
And uh, it either had to be a rock track that you could dance to, a drippy ballad that was like a love song. It was just like a real specific format. And they were having trouble kind of fitting into AM radio. So they added me to the band and also changed record producers from going to London to record with a guy that had produced the Rolling Stones and some other British acts to having a guy in Los Angeles that had made a lot of great rock and roll records. So they kind of shift gears, brought me in, brought in a new producer, and I came in about halfway through uh, the On the Border record, which was their third record. And, um, and stayed for 27 years, in, well, right, you know, yeah. in, including the downtime. Now, a piece of music originated from within your head. This man's head, right here, Hotel California, came from inside his head. And that song now is known and loved by millions and millions and millions of people around the world, and it's now in their heads, and will stay in their heads for as long as they live. I'm sorry about that. No, I mean, that, that's, that's like a magical thing for you to transfer a thought from your head musically and put it into the heads of people all over the world. And that was, that was your uh, demo that you brought in. Uh, it took a long time for it to be finished, apparently, because it took, it took a while for the lyrics to be, to be written. Uh, but, but that was you, and then you and Joe on the guitars. I mean, whoa. Well, I had rented a beach house uh, on the sand in Malibu in like 1974, 75, and we were writing song ideas for what was going to become the Hotel California record. And I had spent a lot of time just writing basic music tracks. Uh, two of the tracks wound up on the Hotel California record. One was a song called Victim of Love, and another song was Hotel California. But I put them all on a cassette um, and given copies to Don Henley, Glenn Fry, Joe Walsh, and Randy Meisner, who was the bass player in the band at the time, and said, if there's anything on this that you hear you want to finish with me, let me know. And I got this call back from Henley. He said, I really like that song that sounds kind of like a Mexican reggae or a, a bolero. And so I knew which song he was talking about. So we went in the studio and recorded the entire song, as you hear it on the record now, but in the wrong key. So when he went out to set up a microphone and started singing, he sounded like Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees singing really high in that high falsetto voice. And I went, no, 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 that's the, that's the wrong key. So we had to go back and re-record the entire record again. And it was in the right key this time for, um, for Don Henley to sing. And then Joe and I were just going to set up and um, plug in two guitars in the studio. And I'd play a line on the end. And Joe would play another line on the end. And we'd kind of just trade ideas like that. Well, we started doing that, and Don Henley came back in after he had lived with my demo cassette for like a year and listened to it over and over and over. And when he came back in and heard us playing different stuff, he said, no, stop, that, that's not right. You can't do it that way. You have to do it just like your demo. So I said, I don't know what that was. I just made that up like a year ago and recorded it on this cassette. So we had to call my housekeeper. We were in Miami at the time in the studio. We called the housekeeper in Malibu, and she went through all my cassettes, found that demo cassette, put it in a blaster, held up a phone to it, and pushed play, and we recorded it in the studio in Miami. And I had to sit down and learn verbatim what I had just made up off the cuff like a year before and sit and play those exact parts, pretty much exactly what you hear on the end of the record now. Now, uh, you were happily very wrong about something when it came to uh, 
Hotel California, uh, because when the, uh, when the finished uh, uh, album was delivered to the record company, uh, Don Henley apparently uh, said, that song, Hotel California, that's going to be the single. And you didn't think that it could be a hit. Well, it was a totally the wrong format. Like I said, AM radio in the 70s wanted three minutes and 30 seconds. It had to be able to be danced to or a ballad. And it's, Hotel California is like six minutes long. It's a minute introduction before the singing starts. It stops in the middle where the drums stop, and then it's got a two-minute guitar solo on the end. So it was just the wrong format. So I argued with Don and said, I think that's a big mistake. I, I don't think we should put that out as a single. And maybe an FM track or something said, no, that's going to be our single, and I've never been so happy to be so wrong in my life. Yeah, it just turned out to be one of the biggest hit singles of all time. So what do I know? And your composition, Hotel California, received Grammy nominations twice. Yeah, that's right. I think it's the only song that's been recorded twice by the same band that's been nominated for Grammys both times. The original record that was in 76 with the electric guitars that everybody knows. And then when we got back together in 94 to do the Hell Freezes Over um, tour, we wanted to do some unplugged stuff. I don't know if anybody remembers the unplugged rave that was going on back in the mid-90s. So we had to work up a version of the acoustic version of Hotel California. So I had the kind of daunting task of trying to figure out how to take these electric guitar riffs and make them unplugged. So if you use a regular steel string guitar, my fear was that we'd sound like a couple of like flat pickers playing country music, and that's not what we wanted to do. And I'd spent a lot of time actually in Boston at uh, Cambridge, uh, right next to Harvard University, playing nylon string guitar in the Holiday Inn while people were eating their dinner and drinking their wine. And I had a lot of dexterity with nylon string guitar from that job that I had there for a year or so. So I pulled out that Spanish guitar and tried to do a, an acoustic version of it using nylon string guitar and worked up an arrangement that you hear on the record now. So uh, that's kind of how that came about. Have you ever wondered whether any of the uh, patrons who dined in the Holiday Inn while you were playing the guitar, if any of them are aware that you grew up to become you know, you? <laughs> I doubt it very seriously. Although I used to do things like somebody would come up uh, and say, look, it's our anniversary. Can you play The Shadow of Your Smile? It's my wife's favorite uh, song. And I would say, yeah, I'll do it right after I come back from the next break. And my dressing room was actually the kitchen where they cook the food. So I'd go into the kitchen and I had a fake book, which has every kind of standard song written out in it. I'd find whatever song they wanted me to play for them. I'd learn it backstage, walk out back on after the break and say, I'd like to dedicate this to Bob and Sally. And I'd get a $5 tip for playing their favorite song. So it was just a way of uh, earning extra money. And uh, I had three jobs. I worked in a recording studio from nine in the morning till six o'clock at night I'd get on a train because I didn't have a car Joe on the train over to Harvard Square I'd play from 6:30 to nine o'clock get on another train and go out and play in a cover band in a bar till like one o'clock in the morning go home and go to sleep and get up and go back in the studio so I was either recording or playing guitar literally non-stop from nine o'clock in the morning till one o'clock in the morning every day well, during the uh, Eagles um, hiatus, uh, well, you had the, the hit uh, Heavy Metal, uh, which was from the movie of, of the same name. 
But uh, you know, there was a constant demand on the part of the public for the Eagles, but for whatever reason, the Eagles just weren't working at the time. Uh, what role did that group of uh, country singers in Nashville have at maybe forcing the band's hand when in, when was it, 92 maybe, 91 or 92, the Common Thread album, when there was a whole superstar group of uh, country artists put together an entire album of Eagle songs that sold like 70 gazillion records. Uh, was that a wake-up call that there was still a demand out there for the Eagles? Well, it wasn't so much a wake-up call that there was a demand for the Eagles, but uh, one of the artists named Travis Tritt, who was a big country artist back then. Oh, and a great guy, too. Recorded, oh, fabulous guy. He recorded the song Take It Easy, and he wanted to shoot a video of that song, and he wanted us all to be in his video. So for the first time in quite a few years, about 10 years, we were actually on the same set in the same room uh, playing guitar and kind of miming this uh, song behind Travis Tritt. So we started talking and having conversations about, hey, this isn't so bad. We can live in the same room together and wound up uh, trying to get back together. And it was actually a very successful effort brought together by Travis Tritt and Take It Easy. Mm -hmm. And hell did freeze over. And the Eagles uh, went on to continued success. And then we came to that big bump in the road. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, it's much like uh, moving back in with your ex-wife or your ex-husband, you know. Uh, when you're with somebody for that long, you have a great affinity for them, and it's very easy to forget exactly the problems that were there in the first place. Uh, and so as, the, as we progressed through the Hell Freezes Over tour, some of the old rubs, much like what just happened with the Beach Boys, started to surface again. Just personality conflicts and egos and all that stuff. And I was happy to be there just playing music and having a great time, but it didn't quite work out. And even though, you know, your motivation is to play music and have a great time, the fact is that a big successful rock band is a big business and a lot of people's livelihoods depend upon uh, the success of that enterprise. You know how to really freak out a deadhead? I mean, totally freak them out? I mean, besides miracling them for, uh, you know, uh, a show. You can totally freak out a deadhead just by letting them know that the Grateful Dead is a corporation that freaks people out. But these are rather big businesses, and when uh, you leave, uh, a partnership with people, or if you're a shareholder in a big business, it takes a while to get out. It costs money. It's stressful. Uh, lawyers have to all get involved. It's, it's just got to be a terribly unpleasant thing. Uh, a sad ending, at least for a while, uh, for just an amazing musical legacy. For you to have to go through that, just as a person. Yeah, well, it's a difficult time to go through any separation in a relationship. And the longer the relationship is, the more difficult it is to separate, whether it's a wife or a husband or a loss of a loved one or a band breaking up that you were in for 27 years. It's a challenging emotional experience to go through that. But that was one of the tests that I was presented with in life. And how I chose to deal with it was a lot of self-introspection uh, to figure out how I had uh, gotten to that point what had happened and how I pick up the pieces and continue on with my life uh, and have a, a, a fun time for the rest of my days. I love playing music. That's kind of what started me on this journey uh, when I was 10 years old. 
I uh, got a guitar from a guy across the street. For, I changed, uh, uh, gave him a handful of cherry bombs in exchange for this old beat-up guitar. And uh, just loved playing music. And I didn't do it for money. I didn't do it for fame. I didn't do it for anything else. Just for the sheer love of playing music. So I, I grew up very poor. And I really had nothing to lose in this world by going out and trying to do anything I wanted to do. So I decided I wanted to play music. I had nothing to begin with. So I had nothing to lose, nothing at stake. So I just did it because I loved uh, playing music. And that's kind of what led me through all the trials and tribulations, starving in New York, working in the studio in Boston, being in the Eagles, and even now that uh, I've been out of the Eagles, to get back to making music and making this new CD is really my love in, in the life. And Saturday you'll be performing here in New York City at uh, the City Winery, which is a beautiful venue. It's very nice. I don't know if any of you have been there before, but uh, it's a great place to see a show. And um, what can people expect from uh, a contemporary performance? Well, a lot of my show, I'd say about 60% of it, is uh, our Eagle songs that I either co-wrote or recorded with the band or toured with the band for 27 years. That's just part of my musical legacy, and a lot of people expect to see that, Hotel California, Victim of Love, a lot of the songs that I co-wrote and recorded with the band. There'll be probably between four and six new songs off this CD that we'll showcase there, since the record has just been released yesterday. Uh, some solo material like... Uh, some solo material like heavy metal. Uh, I play that in the show. A lot of people love that song. I that was a, a very popular song. It that was. was that was yeah. a big hit for you. Yeah, it was. And uh, it actually came about, uh, it was uh, one of the musical tracks that I had written for the Long Run record. And it took so long to finish that record, nearly two years. And we finished it, and it nearly finished us in the process. Between all the fighting and arguing, it was a difficult time. So it was one of the tracks that never got finished and wound up on the record. So I went out to, uh, I think it was Warner Brothers or Universal Soundstage, to see a screening of that animated movie, Heavy Metal. They asked me to write a song for it. So I actually went back and took a lot of the instrumental work that I had done on that other song, which was called originally, the working title was You're Really High, Aren't You? And uh, I thought that was really be a good uh, feeling to have underneath this uh, movie. So I went back and took that music that I'd written and rewrote the lyrics for it for this movie called Heavy Metal. And that's kind of how it all came together. Now uh, we've come to that portion of the evening where we can uh, take some questions from the audience, and uh, I'm looking for the Just raise your hand, I'll come up. Oh, right, so right over here, here this gentleman row. right over here. Hi, how you doing? My name's Gary, I'll see you in a few days at the City Winery. Anyway, one of my favorite songs by the Eagles is um, A Good Day in Hell. I was wondering if you had any specific input into that song, and if you'll ever do it again one of these days, if you did. And the second part of my question is on your new pl uh, album, which I just listened to, I think you have a song called Someday, and uh, I, that song blew me away, and I was wondering if you could tell me about that song as well. 
Well, um, Good Day in Hell. Um, I had known Bernie Ledden, like I said, since high school. We had a band together. It was kind of an English band called the Monday Quintet. And he kept calling me all the time and saying, you've got to move out to California. You've got to come out here. It's where the industry is. So finally, I packed up my U-Haul trailer in Boston with $600 in my pocket and this 65 Volvo. And I drove all the way across the country to uh, Los Angeles. And Bernie was really the only guy I knew when I got to Los Angeles. But I had met the Eagles several times when they were just starting out with their first record and uh, their first couple of hits because Bernie was a friend of mine. So when I got to L.A., I'd go down and hang out with Bernie and go to their rehearsals and jam with him, and we were just friends, you know? So uh, one of the things I had developed, thank goodness, from uh, Dwayne Allman was my ability to play slide guitar. So they had this one song called Good Day in Hell that they wanted to record for their third record, On the Border. So I got a call from Bernie saying, we're going to do this song called Good Day in Hell. Would you come down and play slide on it? So I said, sure. And I threw my guitar and amp in the car, and I drove down to the record plant in Los Angeles and set it up. And we ran the track and recorded it for a couple of hours. And uh, I had a great time. It was another session. I'd been living in a studio in Boston, so I knew how to make records. And uh, my chops were on fire in those days. So um, when I left, I just said goodbye to everybody, like, I'll see you next rehearsal or whatnot. And the next day, I got a call from Glenn Fry, who asked me to join the band. Uh, they really wanted a rock and roll edge to their new record and their new tour. And so I was actually, at the time, I was playing in the Crosby Nash Band. My wife was pregnant with our first child, and I was making $1,500 a week which in 1973, 74, was a lot of money. And I had to really pause for a minute and say, well, do I leave this really good-paying gig here and go off with this band that seems like it's breaking up every minute? There's an argument. Uh, and uh, risk my future of my unborn child with this rock and roll band or not. So I went to what's called the um, Continental Hyatt House. They used to nickname it the Continental Riot House on Sunset because all the rock bands stayed there and tore the place apart. And I met with Graham Nash, who was there, and I went to Graham and said, look, I've got this opportunity. We were about ready to go on the road. What should I do? And Graham really sat down with me, and we talked through it. And he said, I think you should join that band. It's a great band. They're going places, and I think that would be your smartest uh, choice. So I listened to his uh, well-deserved uh, advice and uh, joined the band. And literally, the first day in the studio, I thought they had broken up. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? But uh, it turned out to be the right decision. Do we have another question? We have another question for you all the way to your right over here in the third row. Hi, uh, I lived in, uh, in Baja, in Cabo San Lucas, many years ago, and there was a town nearby called Telgo Santos, and it was very famous for being uh, the place where uh, the Hotel California that, ins that inspired uh, your song is, and I, just, I was just curious to know if, uh, if that was true. You know, actually, that's really interesting that you asked that. I just had dinner with somebody the other night, and they said, I was at the original Hotel California, and I said, where is that? And they said, oh, it's in Baja. It's next to Cabo San Lucas in this little town called Todos Santos. And it turns out that this German entrepreneur bought this hotel down there just outside Cabo San Lucas, 
changed the name to the Hotel California and spread this rumor that we actually used to hang out there and uh, recorded and wrote the song Hotel California there. They sell Hotel California t-shirts. They sell Hotel California tequila. It's a really big kind of tourist trap for all the people that go to Cabo San Lucas. We found out that it's really difficult to sue someone in Mexico. It's nearly impossible. But it's one of the biggest frauds that's ever been perpetrated on the public, uh, in my opinion. So that's not really the true Hotel California. No, but the true memory motel of the Rolling Stones song exists in Montauk. We do have that. That, that divey, dumpy place is, is still there. We have another question for you right here in the front row. Uh, hi, I'm Mike. Um, it's really interesting, uh, the background with CSN and Stephen Sills and Buffalo Springfield. I want to know if you had any run-ins with Neil Young at all. Actually, there's a club on Sunset Boulevard in uh, Los Angeles uh, called the Roxy. I don't know if you've ever heard it. And Neil and I played the first night that place was open. Uh, so I've known Neil quite a few years. One of the first gigs we did when, after I joined the Eagles was we did a fundraiser for the Shumash Indian tribe, which is the Indians of uh, California. This is before they had casinos, uh, that we uh, raised money because they were just in really destitute poverty, and Neil and, and the band felt really like we should do something for those people. So the, uh, as a matter of fact, I don't have it on, but the medicine man gave us these silver cast Eagles claws and I still wear it today when I play, so as a reminder, yeah, Neil's been around a lot, so he's a good guy. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. Are there we have some time more? for two more. Do you see, I see one here. You keep pointing. Was there another oh, one? I'm just going oh, okay, gotcha. We'll go here and then in the middle. Hi, Richard here. Um, when you think back to how it feels like you guys had such a long time to grow, like you started in the business and it took a lot of years to get where you were going, like people like Graham Nash could come from a successful band in England, move to the States, and then, you know, be in another big successful band. And then you move to today, where we're sitting in an Apple store doing an iPod thing. Do you think that as a young artist, if you're having to start over, you would be confident it would all go just the same? Or would it be intimidating? Well, I don't think I've ever been intimidated by anything in the music business, to tell you the truth. Whether uh, I, I guess I'm somewhat fearless in that uh, I love what I do. I'll play for anybody, anywhere, anytime. When I first got to Los Angeles, before I was actually working with Crosby Nash, I would hear that there was a place there called Studio Instrument Rentals, where all the bands would go to rehearse before they went out on the road. There was an English uh, blues uh, artist there named Terry... I can't remember his last name. Anyway, I heard he was playing there. So I packed up my guitar and amp and went over to SIR, walked into his rehearsal hall, plugged in my amp, plugged in my guitar and said, I'm here to play for you. And they said, did our manager send you over? I said, no, 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 but I'm going to play for you anyway. So I've never been particularly intimidated by trying to do anything in this world. Uh, I think it takes a certain amount of courage and just uh, gut fortitude to apply yourself at anything you want to do. And the, the fear of failure is what stops most people from becoming successful in this world. Uh, that's the number one thing that stops people. So I try anything. Uh, failure is a great way to learn what not to do the second time. So uh, I try all sorts of things. Uh, never been afraid to play music. And we have our final question right here in front of you in the second row. Yeah, um, 
in today's music business, I, I find that there's a lot of records coming out that really sound bad. The producers, for some reason, feel like they have to cram all the sound together to make these big blocks of loud. Frankly, the records sound awful. There's no dynamics. Your record sounds amazing. And I'm trying to figure out if you are aware of what I'm saying or if you just wanted to make your own record, but your record has dynamics and breadth and bigness and warmth. And if you could comment on that, that would be great. Well, a lot of that comes from, I, I think my concept of making records comes from less is more. The less you put on a record, the more clearly you can hear each individual part on the record. Um, I, I literally... Uh, was living in Gainesville, and a good friend of mine was from New York City, and he was sitting at his table and reading the Village Voice, and he said, oh my God, Miles Davis is playing at the Village Gate this Saturday night. We have to go see him. So we jumped in his Volkswagen Beetle and drove from Gainesville nonstop up here to, to Manhattan, parked and walked into the Village Gate to, to see Miles Davis. And Miles could say more and, and convey more in three notes than a lot of people could in thousands of notes. So it was a lesson for me in learning what to choose to play and when to play it as opposed to the wall of sound Phil Spector approach to making records. And the Eagles were pretty much that same origin as far as record makings. With five people in the band, you needed to clearly be able to pick out every guy's part that they were playing and singing. And if you put too much stuff on the record, it just kind of turns to a wall of mush. So uh, it's just an approach to making records that comes from the less is more theory. Well, Don Felder will be at the City Winery on Saturday. The album is Road to Forever. Uh, one of the uh, great rock and roll guitarists of all time, and it has been an absolute privilege to be able to uh, spend some time with you this evening Thank here you at the so Apple much. Store. Appreciate it. Don Felder. <laughs> 